Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, A Missionary in Russia. I'm Maurice O'Keefe and in 2010 I interviewed Father Michael Screen for the Irish Life and Lore Irish Missionary Union Project and out of a collection of 150 returned missionaries, I selected this incredible, interesting interview, which was recorded with Father Michael for this week's podcast. Father Michael Screen here in County Waterford at the Sacred Heart Missionary House. Um, can you talk to me first about your own life, about where you, you were brought up? I was born and brought up in northeast Galway on a small farm. And I went to secondary school in um, Secretary Heart College in Western Road in Cork. I did my philosophy and theology studies with the missionaries of the Sacred Heart and was ordained in 1963. At what stage then did you get your long-term appointment to Russia? When did that come about? Well, I worked here for nine years and took some time to do some study as well. And then I was put into formation work with students in Galway and... At that stage, possibilities began to open up in Russia. So uh, we discussed that. In the, I was on the Provincial Council at that point, and we discussed that and asked the question of whether there was something we could contribute. And even though we were now getting short a bit on staff, everybody agreed that we should send three priests there afford to help. So I went with the first group. As a pioneer going to Russia, I mean, what... Had you any idea what you were getting yourselves into? I had. I'm a, my background is history, and I taught history up to university level in England, and I taught 20th century history, which includes all the background. I'd have read a lot on Russia long before I learned the language. Uh, and on the uh, World War, I was teaching that at A level in England. Uh, the Hitler era, the Stalin era. So I would have been well acquainted with the uh, Russian background. But, of course, it's another thing to come into it and another thing at an old age to learn the language. The language. What age were you? What year was this? I went in 1975. I was 58. And at that stage, you were the ideal man because you, you had a, a good knowledge, a good, good background behind you. What, what, what were you given uh, a brief? Well, we saw very quickly that you just cannot function there without the language. And as a result, uh, we went to Moscow to learn the language. 
And while there, we negotiated with the um, church authorities and we were asked to take on a mission in the southern rim of Russia, in the little republics, Chechnya included. And um, eventually we went down there to work on the southern rim borders of Georgia. Talk to me about Moscow Between the Black first. Sea yeah. and the Pasch. Yeah, but Moscow was your first port call, wasn't it? Yes, and Moscow then and Moscow now is very different. Moscow then was still really to walk around and to, the way it looked was real Soviet. All the big monuments and no renovation done. Moscow today is an exceptionally uh, modern city, mm-hmm. uh, beautiful, but uh, at that stage it was difficult. Uh, it was difficult also for always there's a certain xenophobia in Russia about foreigners and uh, uh, you find that sometimes but not in, a, not in an oppressive way in our experience yeah, but Talk to me about the people did they accept you? Um, the, um, there were various levels at the top level church relationships are very political so that how the Pope got on with the Patriarch was always problematic at that stage. The bishops you meet uh, were very varied, from a person who wouldn't shake hands to you to people who would come and have a meal with you. The priests, in my experience, were very easy to deal with. And the priests vary from being highly educated to being very poorly educated. But my experience with the local priests was positive. The ordinary people, uh, I never had a difficulty uh, in eight years with any person in terms of being a Catholic. Uh, And the ordinary people we meet would have a lot of respect. The Catholics were particularly ecumenical. Uh, uh, Very interesting, maybe when you're a minority you can afford to be that. I was amazed at that because I did think we'd have a people who were a very small minority in Russia would find themselves very defensive. But I found them very open to engage with um, the other churches. Oh, that's interesting. So there was no animosity or no ill feelings? or There was a big problem that wasn't the problem of the ordinary people you work with, but at the level of the bureaucracy. And that was particularly around permissions, around uh, documentation visas, etc. That, that is an extremely complicated world in Russia and uh, would even up to now is an ongoing difficulty for people who come to work in Russia. Well, you say that you're uh, constantly checked for, for papers and for uh, your passport, I would imagine. And did you have a green card as well? Amazingly, I got a green card very quickly. I still I didn't even understand its significance when I got it. But I had it from the beginning, from almost from the beginning. Why do you think you got that so quickly? Um, I had a very difficult man ahead of me there who had great difficulty with local authority and I had to continually say to them, I'm not that man. And I think somehow they, they took that as, that, uh, uh, um, as an opportunity maybe to be easier on me. But they gave me, he was a Pole, and you got a um, high level of uh, allergy between Russians and Poles, historically, going back to the 16th century, and it flares up with very little 
uh, reason on both sides. Yeah. Right. Were you ever interrogated? Uh, I was never interrogated in the sense of um, police interrogation. I would have been asked questions. And I would sometimes have been approached by the local authorities and say, we want to ask you some questions in this sense. There's nothing in your file. Why is it that there's nothing in your file? Uh, Which means the file is there, but in fact, uh, no. But I would have quizzed a lot of times uh, in travelling. They would take out and go through all your documentation and... uh, um, that would be normal. But we were living between the Black Sea and the Caspian, and that is a hotbed of trouble there in the whole Caucasus world. Uh, and that's why, uh, on one occasion, driving to um, Mahatkala on the Caspian Sea, we had a little mission there. Con Doherty and myself were driving, I suppose, to 20 hours. But we were stopped 20 times on that journey, sometimes for three quarters of an hour, uh, because... They were watching for everything. It was the time of the trouble in Chechnya, and we had to go around Chechnya because it would be too dangerous to go through. So um, they were watching for people carrying arms and that kind of thing, or bombs. And so. Was that intimidating? No, it was uh, annoying in terms of time, but it actually was an added security for us to know that things were being watched for, and in that sense that it made the road a little safer. Yeah. Uh, you moved out of Moscow after only just three years. Oh, after a year. Yeah. Was it just yeah. a year? A year and a half. Yeah. And, and so uh, the, were you invited down by the bishop to the, to the courts? Yes, the bishop invited us, asked us, would you be happy to work in that area? Who was the bishop at the time? It was bishop Kondosevich. He was a Belarusian bishop in Moscow. And he was, at that stage, he was the only bishop in Russia, only Catholic bishop in Russia. Later... Um, it was divided into two in Europe and into two dioceses in Siberia, end of Russia. Yeah. And then, at that stage, a new bishop came, Bishop Clements, for the southern half of Russia, which is looks to be, if you're in the map, it looks a bit small, but if you look at it, it's 11 or 12 times the size of Ireland. Yes, and um, we went down in response to that, checked out the place and decided we would go. Yeah. And so we started working in in the two or three republics down there, Dagestan, which is very much in the news with Chechnya, and Kabardino-Balkarskia, which is about the size of Munster, and has, with two or three parishes there. And we also worked a little bit in Stavropol, Krai, or area. Uh, so we had a, quite a, a, a big territory. Local people were extremely poor when we went there. The money collapsed. Technically, in Russia, they used to say the ruble was equal to the dollar. But in my time, first time I was there, you would get 2,800 rubles for a dollar. And two years later, you'd get 5,800. And then they took the three notes off the notes and said, instead of 5,000 rubles, you have five. And then it began to... The, the, Collapse of the money was so so serious and so total at that stage that paper probably was more valuable than the denomination. So what did people do? We don't know how to survive. We would have done a lot of help, uh, humanitarian help uh, in medicine, sometimes local medical services, and in sometimes in education and quite often feeding people as well. We'd have 
Would you have experienced the end of communism? Did you see that happen? I think um, the collapse, collapse was coming, and this is notable in some people because they would tell you the fear has gone. I would have known people who would tell me about the fear they had of family being taken next door at night or from their dome or their block of flats, and they were afraid to look out the window because if they were seen looking out, they probably would disappear the next day. Um, and or the fear of threats of one kind or another. Or I knew a doctor, knew a young man who told me about his father, a doctor. They came to him and said, we want you to sign these documents for one of your patients, saying he was mad. And the doctor said, um, but he's not mad, there's nothing wrong with the man. Well, they said, if you don't sign them today for him, they'll be signed for you tomorrow. And he said, my father signed, but um, never recovered. Was that unsettling? Of course it's unsettling, because it's personalised. I knew all that from my history, and a lot more. But Which it, you were now experiencing But it's it. very unsettling when it becomes personal. Yeah. You know? uh, or, for example, people I would meet who were in the Ukraine during the induced famines in the 30s, when millions died, uh, people who would talk about walking long distances with just in deep pain of hunger. Yeah. So uh, living uh, amongst, you know, with these people that had these awful memories that they were bringing with them, but also, uh, were they still, when you were newly into that new parish, were you... Were you dealing with people who were still trying to recover? Um, the people needed to recover, but there was very little consciousness of either the possibility or the desire, because they lived in a system that had to be they, where they had to keep quiet, and as a result, they very often buried their hearts and wouldn't even bring them to consciousness. And I would have moments talking to people. Well, I might have said to people, um, for example, even teaching about the Christian faith and talking about the Calvary experience of Jesus, and ask, well, look, has there ever been a Calvary experience in your life? But people would stop, and maybe after a bit of an invitation, <clears throat> might say, yes, I remember that time, marching on the way to prison, or one way or another, or family members disappearing or my father was taken away uh, by, the, um, by the government and never came back. Oh, yeah. And even now at this moment, there is uh, a lot of pressure that people don't talk about things now. I think Putin was considering a law last year, I think, to make it a crime nearly to say that these things happened. Were people conditioned then? People were very conditioned to be careful. And some were very conditioned to report on you. And people, as it was part of the life in Soviet times, there's a kind of story of a Soviet boy who went in and told the police that his parents said prayers and they were up in trouble. And he was made a hero of the nation. That kind of uh, abuse uh, of child and family, that people would know that. And um, reporting... Uh, people were still reporting when I was there as they would have been told to do in Soviet times. You know, poor, poor, scanty, unusual, they saw around. Oh, yeah. And, and 
Uh, so people were broken, were they? People were very broken, and uh, we would see in our <coughs> ministry, and Stephen may have mentioned this, we would see in our ministry that um, working for a kind of healing of the conscious, conscience, but yeah. mostly of the consciousness, uh, would be an important dimension of uh, liber- gospel liberation. Okay, so you you were not just dealing with the... Uh, with what you saw, you had to get deep inside their, yes, their and subconscious. Nearly. Y- yes, and uh, our Christian faith, I believe, has great ways of dealing with that. For example, our sacrament of reconciliation and forgiveness is one factor that people can find themselves in very deep wounds. For example, there's a very big, very big tradition of um, family planning by means of abortion that people just didn't think of anything wrong about it until they came to a Christian consciousness and all of a sudden it's a massive trauma for them. And as a result, being able to deal with that. But there's also the whole, we need forgiveness for things we consciously do wrong. We need healing for what is done to us. Most people are much more sinned against than sinning. And for that they don't need forgiveness. They need uh, healing. Well, did any of this rub off in you in, in those years? Were you affected yourself? Well, at one level, I think in ministry, everything rub, rubs off in you yeah. because if you have a heart for people. But the other side is you have to also to learn to be able to empathise and be with people. That It doesn't serve them to duplicate their experience. Well, your role uh, as... Par- were you parish priest there? Or? Uh, we were all parish priests, but when we got a new bishop, he decided to, he asked me, as being the only old man around, to become his vicar general. So I spent the last four years before coming home working with him to re-establish the church, because the church disappeared. There were 60 years with no church in Russia. And here we are now, people coming out of the woodwork. And, um, yeah. for example, um, marvellous experiences we, a woman came to me one day, she said, my mother's a Catholic. She says, I'm not a Catholic, I'm nothing now. She says, but my mother's a Catholic and she heard there's a priest around. Would you mind visiting her? And I went to see her and she said, I want to go to confession. It is 75 years since my last confession. <laughs> okay, so I did... did and yeah. many times, 60 years. Are people, another experience that I found continually, people waiting to meet a priest, waiting to die until they saw a priest. You know, and often have the sacraments and they're at peace. Maybe that within a day or a week. They are literally hanging on there until the, and I would, It was a, an extraordinary t- time of grace in that sense. Happy to see a priest. Uh, at, 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 yeah, yeah. Ready, ready to want to go to the sacraments. They haven't yeah. had them for 60 years. Yeah. And now, when they have them, said, now, now, like a bit like Simeon and the Gospel, now it's time to dismiss my Lord. Um, you know, you must uh, tell me uh, in in those years. Did you? Uh, there was a bomb. Uh, uh, there was a lot of of um, turbulence, uh, war time. Yes, we were there just after as the <coughs> first war in Chechnya was ending, ninety six thereabout, seven, and it was a very militarized zone. It was really like parts where I had some few parishioners I would visit around the town of Mozdok and that was particularly so because that was the centre of Russian activity in, into the war in Chechnya uh, and 
uh, there would be great quizzing there. I remember one day coming in there, and the soldier told me to put my car aside and come into the office. But when he saw, I handed my passport, my God, he said, what on earth is, in, what in hell is an Irishman doing in Mosdok? You know, uh, quite humorous, but he, and he, then he apologised, which is very rare, and he said, now we have to ask you a lot of questions, but really, they're for your safety. You know the situation here. And uh, that didn't often happen, but it did on that occasion. Right. In other words, yeah, so in fact, uh, the... the, the you were respected so. You seem to to have fitted in in, in the community there very there, well. There, there is a sense, yes. I, would, uh, I think we all fitted in at a certain level. Um, we're always foreigners. We have to get our documents and spend a lot of time on them, money too. But um, the, um, we were dealing with people who probably weren't a big threat to anyone. We were dealing with the poorer end of society. Often there were Catholics who had been impoverished by uh, the war and by the um, uh, things that happened in Stalin's time and afterwards. Many of them had been in Siberia or many of them had been in Kazakhstan and crept back in Khrushchev's time to work on a, on a collective farm or get, get a garden and support themselves on that. Were you not self-sufficient there? No. No, the. I um, mean, were you getting government uh, help, or no, we, uh, did you? Uh, we got uh, no, no, never get anything from government. Um, we never get. The people are not able to pay. They will make some contribution, mm-hmm. but you are talking about uh, pen money, really. That, uh, generally, now there may be times when some parishes may develop a bit better, but the reality is, we are support. Uh, the, the mission there is supported from home. That's why Irish people have been incredibly, incredibly generous to us. And we wouldn't be saying that out loud but for, because you have to have respect for the people who are benefiting from such help. But uh, we do say it and recognise and are very happy to recognise that our whole mission in Russia really was uh, had to be supported from outside. More big way for, we were helped very much from Ireland. Germany was a massive help. Vatican and some income as well. Oh, we, yes, indeed. And what, what? So money was coming from the Vatican, yeah. Money, some money came to the diocese, not direct to our own mission, our Irish mission, but yeah. would come to the diocese, as it does to a lot of missions around the world. When people do Peter's Pence and other collections for the Vatican, uh, it, a, lot, a lot of it is distributed around needy areas in the world. People don't often know that, but I would know that myself. I'd have collected money myself at times in the nuncio in Moscow to bring to different missions. Yeah. What do you think you did uh, and the rest of uh, your congregation to make a difference? What we did, certainly um, uh, the areas in which we've been working, with two areas in particular, one is now looked after by a group of priests and nuns from France, and the area where Con and where three of our men are working at the moment is extremely complicated, politically, socially, historically. It's the Cossack territory which would be bit like orange man Russians uh, at times and uh, it can complicate things in terms of who's pulling the strings at the office where you want to get a planning permission or a, a visa and often you don't know and uh, there is an immense skill in many bureaucrats about pushing paper and doing nothing like most places in the world. Uh, so that is all there and that is discouraging but I think that there are uh, uh, there are also disappointments that 
very few vocations have come and the situation is not improving at the moment. Um, there are a few sister, you know, Russian sisters coming through, a few priests too, but not, we don't, haven't got anyone to date. Uh, and the hope is they will come. But very often you get that in a second generation rather than first in mission work. Do you think that there was a rekindling uh, after, in your time, a, a, yeah. a revival of uh, There is a revival in many ways, and I think in some ways in the Orthodox Church now it is uh, picking up well. In our Catholic Church there is certainly a revival because the Catholic Church was simply eliminated by 1939. Mm-hmm. Every single church in Russia, every single priest was gone, killed or exiled or just disappeared. Uh, every work was suppressed. And then you're starting 69 years later. And my estimation is that six out of every seven Catholics had disappeared in that time. So you're dealing really with a remnant of a small number of Catholics. Uh, and they're only finding their courage and finding their faith. And it's going to take time. And they have also gone through all the chaos of being without education and sometimes very poor and sometimes in marriages now are connections that are complicating as well. And so it's a, a very complex world to start building. You can imagine reading the New Testament finding in Rome where you have a group maybe in Corinth of 30 Catholics among half a million and we read the account about them now and we can think almost it's all Corinth here but the reality is they were all, to fit in, all able to fit in two houses. Now, in many places, we would have a house, have Eucharist in a family house first, and maybe sometimes spilling out over the yard. Eventually, we've got to try to get some building that would be able to be a bit more helpful. But yeah. that, the level of our work was uh, very small, and we would be also trying to see that we're trying to build communities more than buildings, even though we sometimes need the building to house them. It's kind of hard to imagine how that... that I mean, it's, it's amazing what you've done, but it's hard to imagine a country that would be so opposed to religion and in such a short time to have it come back again. Uh, yes, but Stalin in 1938-39 set up a group to examine how far religion had died out by then. And they found in their... Uh, studies that something the reason of 53% were still believers. I think he sent the people who did the inquiry to Siberia. But uh, <coughs> but there is a, there are levels at which faith continues. People would have put their icons up in the in the attic because they were afraid they would have been trouble if they were seen, and they may be living the faith within their hearts. Many did that, and some people suppressed the faith so deeply that sometimes it now just came forth. I, met, I was called to a doctor uh, not very long before I came home. Her daughter had become a Catholic in Moscow. And she asked me to see this woman and I chatted with her and she was ill with cancer. And eventually I chatted a bit about, she was asking me a bit about the faith and I explained a bit and eventually uh, baptised her and gave her, anointed her and gave her communion all for the first time. And then she started saying, this is great, this is all my life I've been waiting for this moment. That's very touching, isn't it? Mm. Over and over again, I'd have experienced it, that something was stirred. And you know, it is slow, and it's going to be long-term. But it was a bit like we had in this country in penal times. 
in this whole diocese of Waterford was a time. Yeah. There were three priests. But, uh, sorry, yes, I'm you're But, so, I can see your, your extreme passion and your, your, your uh, for your mission. My you, blessing, uh, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Did yeah. you learn yourself from, from, from your experience? Oh, um, oh almost. Uh, I, this was an experience. It was, when I look back now, it was tough going in many ways. And I troubled my health a bit. But it was a blessing that my life would be impoverished in a lot of ways without it. If I wasn't there, maybe something else would be going well. But it was the kind of experience that I just would not like to be without in my my life. Would you do it all over again? I would, yes. Would you? I would, yes. Without even thinking? I wouldn't. The only thing that would stop me even now is my health. Really? Yes. When did you come home? I'm home. I can hardly believe it. I'm home eight years. Oh, so uh, I'm, I'm sure I, forgot, yes. I should have forgotten about it now, but I still yeah. dream. <laughs> no, I'd say you probably dream in Russian. But your your time here at home then for the last eight years, what have you been yeah. doing? I came back home and I had some medical things for a while, but I was putting our house in Galway, and we have a small centre there, a kind of retreat centre, a non-residential retreat centre, and we do um, courses in adult education and faith and scripture work and personal dialogue with people, different things, yeah. basically to be a support for the church and to help them, um, to, it's time to work with the local church. Well, we've come to the end of this week's podcast with Father Michael Screen. I hope you enjoyed listening, and if you would like to access his full interview, it's available on our website, or you can access any of the 150 missionary stories which are available to see on our Irish Life and Lore website. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.